So for those who are, I know there's not, there's not too many visitors here this morning, but we're doing a series on what does God want. Uh, we've really answered the question, God wants you and me in, as humanity that he's created. Uh, but there's obviously a bigger story to this. And what we've done is we're taking a biblical narrative we're looking at the story of God, and we're kind of looking back because I do think that much of the Bible that we read, we've read it or we've heard from people that we trust, and, and, and they're good people, but they haven't actually gone back to what the original writer's understanding was and their biblical worldview. And so what happens is, is we miss a lot of what the Bible is trying to tell us, a lot of the context in which the stuff was written. When we hit Genesis 6 and we hear about the Nephilim and we hear about the Watchers, and then we hear about the Noah's flood. Everyone focuses on Noah's flood, but there was a reason for the flood. And we all blame that on humanity, but actually there's a lot more of a sinister setup that is happening. And we're going to go through those in the weeks to come. The point is, is where have we been? Well, we talked about context, and I've just mentioned it. And without going through that same thing, you can listen to some of the preachers we've already done. But words have meaning according to context. And I gave examples of that. I'm not going to go into it right now. Then Louise came and told us that the Bible is still trustworthy. The fact that the English translations sometimes lead us into incorrect understanding, that requires us to go and actually study more. It requires us to go into the treasure chest and actually find out. Because remember, God, it's up to God to conceal a matter, but it's up to the kings to go and seek it out. And so those mysteries we need to go and seek out and find out what is happening. And we've had amazing men like Michael Heiser, who's, who's, who we, we're basing a lot of the series on in terms of his material. And... Uh, the point is, is that we can trust God's word. And Louise, if you want to know how trustworthy the word of God is in the Bible, just go and listen to her preach because it actually is the most authenticated uh, document ever in history. Whatever ancient documents you look at, and without going into all those details, go and listen and you'll see. And then we, we went into this thing of God's got a divine family. He created it before he created humanity. And, the, and we don't see that if we've read the Bible in traditional lenses. And I showed you that there in, in Job where it says where Job's kind of telling God off and, and, and God says, um, excuse me, Job, where were you when I measured out the, measured out the, the heavens? Like, where were you? Like, you, you kind of think that you know all of this, but you weren't there. No, but the sons of God were there and they were celebrating. What? Oh, so the sons of God. Oh, but what does that mean? And those, that word is Elohim. And we've always, when we hear the word Elohim, we always think of God the Father. Why? Because in the beginning, God, in the beginning, Elohim. And so we, we've now taken that word Elohim and we've given all of the characteristics to God our Father when actually that's not, that's not the truth. Because the word Elohim is used across a broad range of, of, of characters or of spiritual beings in the, in the unseen realm. Everything from Samuel who is conjured up by the medium for Saul. And, and we don't want to look at that. No, it was a demon. No, it was, it was Samuel. But he was called an Elohim because he came from the unseen realm. And angels and and demons are called Elohim. Okay, so are we now saying that our Father God is the same as those things? No. It's describing the nature of a spiritual being in the unseen realm. And so when we look at this, but we understand is that Yahweh is an Elohim, but no Elohim is like Yahweh. Yahweh is the uncreated one. Yahweh is the one who we worship. Yahweh is the only uncreated being that is worthy of worship. And he created other Elohim who live within the context, just like he's created sons of man, he's created sons of, of God within the context of a council. And that council is an assembly that helps him do all the decisions or to go and to actually accomplish the decisions that he's made. And a lot of what we do is when we go to Psalm 82, we go to Psalm 89, we gloss over these things. And even the English translations have, 
have called them angels or they've called them something else. But the Hebrew translation is sons of God. And people have tried to explain it away. And we're going to show you how all of this stuff fits together. And we are trusting that as we go through this, that what Quentin just said is maybe let's be less questioning and less focused on what God is and who he is. Because what you will see is if, if, if all of this pushes us to a place of an insatiable appetite for his word and more love for him, isn't that the goal? At the same time, we want truth. And these are all attested things, which I think as, a, as people, of, we, we've taken the word of God from tradition rather than what it's actually saying. And so Yahweh is unique. He is superior. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. He is the all-encompassing creator of the universe. Elohim and humanity, and important for us to understand. And I know that was one of the big, and there's a lot more coming. So God created this human family, me and you. And we gave us this kind of status to work with this godly family. And that's why Eden came into play. And we're supposed to steward these things that God's given us. And that's why he gave us this context of Eden. And Eden was where heaven and earth met. That's why, in a sense, we are walking Edens now. Because we've got Holy Spirit in us, it's where heaven and earth should be meeting and where we should be extending Eden across into the world today. Whether you are going to, um, you know, mass mart or whether you're going to whatever workplace you're at, you should be extending Eden to the people around you. Why? Because you should be leaving the fingerprints of God, the heavenly setup in terms of the stewardship of what God's given you. You should be doing that. And so within all of this stuff, are we doing those kind of things under the authority of God? Because as Sherry preached last week and did an amazing job, showed us how heaven and earth intersected at that point. That was God's plan all along, that we, the households of humanity and of heaven, should be actually stewarding this world together. And we'll show you how those heavenly beings, some of them didn't like it because they got jealous and they started to do some unhelpful things. And Louise is going to be sharing the details around that. Don't miss it because it is, it is crazy. It's a roller coaster ride and we're going to go for it. The point is, we're supposed to grow Eden. And are we doing that? Because that's kind of the nervous system of what, who God is and what he wants us to do to, to actually extend out who God is into, and the kingdom of God into this world, into Project Planet Earth. So, God created humanity. They lived in paradise, connected to the unseen realm. The question is, is what went wrong? Yeah, dun, dun, dun. So how's this? I don't know about you, but every time I've read this scripture, and it's both in verse 6, verse 7 of Job chapter 1, isn't it interesting that most of your Bibles, including the NIV, is unhelpful because it doesn't say it like this, but that's actually the literal translation. But isn't it interesting? I've always understood that Satan came before God and said, hey, your servant Job, man, come on. He lacks integrity. The only reason he's got all this stuff is because you're protecting him. That's how I've traditionally understood it. But it doesn't say that. The sons of God came to present themselves and kind of Satan tagged along. Now automatically you go, oh, okay. This is a little bit different. This is not Satan kind of leading a procession to God and saying, hey, there's Job. No, it's the sons of God that come. And there's this Interesting character, and as you can see, I've called it because in the Hebrew, it's the Satan. It's the Ha-Satan. What is that? Why is there uh, an article, definite article attached to the name? I mean, 
I don't come and I say, hey, here's the Peter. I'm the Gary. It's the same in Hebrew. You don't have that in that context. Why is that? Well, let's, let's start to go through it. So like I said, Satan tags along in, in this entourage to come and see God. And uh, it actually seems to indicate that he's kind of like a lesser being compared to these sons of God who are now coming to seek an audience with God the Father. And the interesting thing is, is that Hebrew word hasatan means prosecutor, ad- adversary, or challenger. Okay. So it speaks of the function that this particular individual, this figure, has within the context of God's counsel. Okay, Gary, that's... But what was he doing? What was his function? Well, if we look, read the next verse, it says, And the Lord said to Hasatan, to the accuser, From where have you come? And Hasatan says, Lord, I've been going to and fro over the earth and from walking up and down and all around it. In other words, he's going across Project Planet of the Earth to see what is going on and to see where he can bring an accusation against humanity in God's counsel. Oh, okay. So if that's his role, to bring these accusatory reports, then what does that represent in terms of who is the villain in Genesis chapter 3 that we know as the talking snake, who we've called Satan? Because if you go read that text, that is not Hasatan. Huh. So these are not the same figures. These are not the same people. These are not the same personality. But we, through tradition, have just painted everything with the same brush, that that's Satan and that's Satan and that's Satan. But this is the accuser in God's holy counsel who's been brought into God's presence. Have you never asked that question? Why was Satan allowed back into God's presence and able to give uh, God the, the, the connections around, well, you need to take your protection away from Job? Huh? Why would he allow that when Satan had already caused all the fall in Eden? And he'd already sentenced them to the death, to the realm of the dead. See, now it starts to make sense. Because what we've done is we've painted everything with the same brush. Now, now why has that all happened? Well, because, like I've said, we don't go and say, well, there's the Dale. There's the Richard. It's the same. The proper nouns aren't, they don't use a definite article. In fact, the only time they use a definite article are in other places where God has actually sent an angel of Yahweh to go and do something. So you think of, what's his name? Um, uh, not Gabriel. The, 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 in, 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 uh, um, no, no, no. The guy on the donkey. What's his name? Balaam. Balaam. <laughs> yeah, no, not Jesus. Not, not, not Jesus. <laughs> Balaam. In Numbers 22. <laughs> Lord, help me. Um, but Numbers 22 was, you know, Balaam's dis- disobeying God. And so the angel of the Lord comes and he opposes. He comes to accuse Balaam. It's used in the same term. So now we're saying, oh, the angel of the Lord is also Hasatan. What? Same words. But again, through, tra- tra- through tradition, we've made Hasatan just a blanket name across the scriptures, meaning the devil, which the New Testament describes him as that particular person who was the Genesis 3 serpent, which we'll get into, and we're going to show you all of that. Because he was so bad that what happens with the the Hebrew writers is because of this function, the Jewish writers decide, well, we're going to name him the Hasatan. He is the mother of all Hasatans. I don't know. That's, blame Michael Hasat, it's his wording. Yeah, maybe the father of all it. 
is probably the better, but the mother of all is the, the, the colloquialism that we use, isn't it? So the point is, is Genesis 3 has the serpent that opposes God's choice of creating hum, humanity and putting them into a certain place of authority, etc. And he comes in and causes the problem. I'm not going to get into that. Luis is going to get into that. And that's why the label sticks, because these Jewish writers saw Hasatan, or saw the Genesis 3 person, as the ultimate accuser. And so they named him Hasatan. But it's not the same person, it's not the same figure in Job. Hmm. So let's have another backdrop look, because it's important for us to understand, because this Hasatan, this, this Satan, is accusing uh, Job of lacking integrity and that God needs to now give him the ability to go and prove that Job is not who he says he is. And so that's what starts to happen. Now what we need to look at is Job 4 and 15 and Il, Il, Eliphaz or Eliphaz, I don't know how you would say his name, a great name if you're pregnant, um, responds to Job. Now you remember this is one of Job's mates and Job's kind of lamenting his life. He's lost everything. He's lost his kids, he's lost his fortune, he's lost all of these things. And he's, he's moaning to his mates, and his mates are really unhelpful. But let's see how it gives us insight into God's heavenly counsel, because this is what he says in, in both of these texts. And I want to show you, again, in the ESV. Remember, the ESV is a literal translation. It doesn't mean it's the best translation. It just means that it's going to literally translate what the original Hebrew said. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust in his angels. Huh? Okay. Chapter 15. What is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. Which he's talking about the sons of God. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. Huh? So what he's trying to tell us is that God's heavenly counsel are corruptible. In the same way that Job is corruptible. Job was called blameless, but he was corruptible. You and I are corruptible. God is not corruptible. God is perfect. But God's heavenly counsel is corruptible. So now we start to see this backdrop that actually there are corrupt, that, that the God's heavenly beings are as corruptible as us. And we don't have to look any further than our government, can't, do we? Yahweh is perfect. He is incorruptible. He is the one who is not like us other beings. But we are like these other beings. And we cannot be trusted just like they cannot be trusted. And that's what Eliphaz is trying to tell us. So, Sherry shared this very well last week. Talking about identity and who we are, etc. But at the same time, and if you remember what she said, is God gives us, he, we are images of him. He gives us attributes to be able to walk out as images of him. And one of that is free will. It's probably the biggest theological debate that you will ever come across. If you are in the Calvinistic camp, or if you're in the Arminius camp, and I'm not going to go into all those details, it is one of the biggest things. Did we choose God? Did God choose us? Is God sovereign? Do we have free will? And then because of all the different things, now I want to show you that we definitely have free will. Otherwise, we cannot be images of God. And that's why I, do, I am not a Calvinist. I don't have irresistible grace that when God shows himself to me, I don't have a choice but to choose. That's not free will. That's robot stuff, exactly. 
The point is, is that in all of this stuff, is God shares his attributes to us, and genuine free will is so that we can represent him, represent him to the world. And it's important for us to understand that. And because God does this perfectly, we are to try and aim at doing that perfectly, but we as the lesser beings do this really imperfectly from the start to finish. And that's why things go wrong in Eden, because we are given free will, and now we've got the propensity or the risk to choose the alternate, which is not God's way. And of course, we all know the story. So the point is, is there's no guarantee that when God creates a free will agent, an imager, that they will do all of what God wants to. Will we choose God? And you know, across the world, you just have to listen to any worldly podcast, whether it's Joe Rogan or whether it's someone else. And why are you following? What's this God thing? Come on, it's a figment of your imagination. What's wrong with you? No, they're choosing not to engage God and choosing not to live under what God wants. So God took a risk. He's made us as free images to make decisions for ourselves and to choose him or to not choose him. Okay, so Gary, that's sounding all right. God knew that you and I could misuse or abuse those gifts, which clearly we have. Humanity has abused it, and so has his images in terms of the heavenly realm too. And if he knows that, and he knew that we are imperfect and that we might make these mistakes, then why did he make us, and why doesn't he just kind of take us out? Because we are selfish. We are rebellious. We are saying, God, I want to do it my way. The good old, what's his name? Frank Sinatra, the Frank Sinatra principle, I'll do it my way. And this is exactly what happened in Eden. Violated God's command, went and did our own thing, rebelled against God and all of this stuff. And we now are taken outside of God's presence in terms of the Adamic setup. Although it's interesting, God comes with us. We'll get into some of those things as we go. But the point is, every human being born after that was born outside of Eden. And now how do we get back? Well, God makes a plan for us. Because as Romans uh, 6 says, the wages of sin is death. And death is the separation from God. So, why does evil exist in this world? How many, like Quentin asked that question, how many of you thought, God, why don't you just smash evil? Get our corrupt government out. Get Putin out of this place. Get, just clear the, clear the air, man. Just take them out. And like what Rich said is we, in our prayer meeting was, you know, we were we we'll such and say, yeah, God struck him with lightning. But guess what? If I break the speed limit, we were on our way to, to church this morning and my father-in-law Evan was telling me about guys who were doing 200 kilometers an hour racing here the other day, going towards Broadacres, going around that bend at almost 200 k's an hour. Now we can go, oh, skunder, but if I'm doing 81, I'm still breaking the law as much as they are. So we can point fingers at Putin and whatever else, but what about my heart? What about what I'm doing every day? It's just... If I'm sinning and I'm opposing God, I'm doing as much rebellion as Putin is. So we need to understand that and we need to make sure that we're not just, it's, oh, it's all those, it's you guys, it's not me. <laughs> like we know it's Willem, but it's definitely not, not me. No, exactly. Okay. So, in order for free will to be free will, there has to be an alternative. I choose to love Louise. Or I choose to die. <laughs> you all know that to be true. Yeah, it's a choice. <laughs> the point is, is that's what we have every single day of our lives. Is The question then is, is, why doesn't God do away with evil? Because 
by my example, he would have to take us all out. Because I may break the speed limit by one kilometer, but I'm still a lawbreaker. So why does God not get rid of evil on Project Planet Earth right now? He is going to. There is a time. He's already told us this. It's predestined. But there's a way that he's going to do that over time. But if we're wanting him to do that, he has to actually deal with us and take out all of us, all his free images. That's why evil still exists. Why? Because he would rather risk with our rebelliousness and our decisions that we make against him than not have us at all. Oh my gosh. How much does this God love us? Okay, so because evil exists simply because you and I abuse the gift of freedom. We do what we want, when we want, and how we want it. I want it my way. Freddie Mercury, give me it all now. What an amazing, gifted musician. And yet look at his life if you've seen the movie of the testimony of his life. A man that I I believe was called to worship God and to declare him from the rooftops with the voice that God gave him. And yet he landed up in a life of debauchery because of the decisions that he made. The self-gratification. This kind of revenge. If you do this, I'll do that to you. And this mirage of autonomy. We think, we think the Joe Rogans of this world think they're very clever because they're wealthy and they've got these big podcasts. But actually what's happening is they've got a, a mirage that they think they're autonomous and that they're making these decisions for themselves, but actually what they do is they're continually moving away from the presence of God and putting themselves at risk. Because that abuse all began in Eden, way back with Adam and Eve. The question is, is God was not taken by surprise. There's a lot of texts around this. Ephesians chapter 1 says what? Come on. Testing the, the Bible literacy. Before the creation of this world. Jesus was crucified for us. Before time, before God created us, God already had the plan in place because he knew that you and I were likely to rebel and choose other things rather than him. Okay, but Gary, then, as you can see by this thing, it's like if he anticipated that and he planned for it, then, you know, in this whole process, why doesn't he destroy us instead of redeeming us in the way that he did? So let me ask it this way, which is up behind me. If God knew evil would come into this world through you and me and through his created beings in the unseen realm, is he evil or is he at least complicit in the evil that is on this world? If he's sovereign, if he's the creator of all things, then that's what people say. And I've read many accounts of this. If you want to go and read, um, uh, she was, my brain's not working this morning. Um, not evidence of Mark demands a verdict, the latest one. No. Guy who went to prove God was wrong, atheist, and now is a pastor, wrote the book. Case for Christ. Okay? Go read Case for Christ. It's a it's an apologetic process of a guy who was a journalist who goes and actually uh, finds out that actually no Jesus does exist and now he's a pastor. I mean, go figure, hey. How many of those people have come through that process? But the point is he, he writes a case for creation. But he goes and he interviews all these people. And one of the things he does is he interviews the one guy. And you realize that, that, that what people do is they miss out on who God is. Because the one guy was actually Billy Graham's counterpart. And when he interviews this guy, 
He says, no, the reason I don't serve Jesus anymore and I really miss him is that I cannot serve a God who would allow, allow a blind, a, a worms to blind a child in Ethiopia through malnutrition. On one level, I think we all kind of understand that because we go, God, why? I remember going on a mission. I was probably 19 years old. Went on a short-term mission into Lesotho, into the Butabuti, Makwini area, and we went into Masira as well, and we saw a lot of malnourished children. And what often happens when a mom is malnourished and gives birth to a baby, their head swells. It's a condition. It, it can, can be treated medically, but obviously it needs bucks, and actually not a lot of bucks, but of course... The first world doesn't want to put money into that because there's no money in that. So why, why, why solve that problem? Sorry, that was an aside. But the point is, is we sat there and we prayed for this child. This child was four years old. And generally what happens is that they hardly ever make that age because their necks break because their heads are too big. They look like aliens. Now we're sitting there and we're praying and we're going whatever. And like, God, why would you allow this? And uh, there was a guy that was on, on this trip with us. His name was George Malabatsi. And he just said, Gary... This is because of the decisions we made in the Garden of Eden. Let's not blame God for this. It's the selfishness of humanity that doesn't deal with that. But what we do is if we don't talk the truth, then people reject God, like Quentin was saying. So much effort is going in to prove why God doesn't and why God isn't and why God's also evil and he's a masochistic whatever because look what he would do to his son and whatever. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, for God so loved the world. Why don't we start there? Because those other things will reduce to insignificant things once you understand the true nature of who God is. And if you want some other text, and for those who are online, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 Peter 1, before the creation of this world, God put a plan in place before that. And it's important for us to understand that. The point is, if God foreknows all things, has he predestined them? My slide has slipped. It's got furniture disease. If so, is there really free will? In other words, if God has predestined everything, if you're a Calvinist, hey, you just, well, God's going to show me himself irresistible grace. I'm just going to respond. I'm, I'm sorted because I'm one of the elect. I'm one of the chosen ones. Skunder, man. Come on. No, no. That goes against everything God's created. Then I don't have a free will. So when people say there's a limited atonement, it's only for some, it's only for the elect, it's only for those who are predestined, that is not true. They have misinterpreted and they've confused predestination and foreknowledge. And I'm going to show you that in a moment. The point is, is though, um, is there really free will for us as his free will images if God is sovereign and has predestined all of the stuff? How does this foreknowledge and predestined work? How does, how does that go with our free will? Because, you know, if God is sovereign, then I don't have free will. But if I've got free will, then God's not sovereign. But actually, all of that I've explained is God has made us free will agents to choose because love is only love if I can choose. Sacrifice is only true sacrifice if I choose. Okay, so here's a nice example. So we're talking about David eluding Saul. If you know the biblical narrative, you understand that in this whole process, and it's out of 1 Samuel chapter 23, and uh, Saul's chasing down David because he's jealous of him. He wants to take him out. And, the, and there's, there's a whole bunch. You can see how many times David evades Saul. He clearly had a great sidestep. Um, Saul was maybe a bigger guy and didn't move as fast. I don't know. Just, that was a joke. But anyway, the point is, and I don't know how you say this, this, this name for the city. I don't know if it's Kyla or Kiela or whatever the case is. The point is, 
the Philistines are attacking this particular town. And David and his men go, flip, this is not right. We need to do something. So David inquires of God. And he says, God, if we go, will you give us a victory? And God says, yes, go. So they go and they snot clap the Philistines and they save the city from the Philistines. So let's catch the story from there. David knew that Saul was plotting against him because now there's obviously this big battle. Word gets out that David's now at um, Kyla and that uh, you know, Saul now knows that he can come and besiege the city and you besiege a city and what are you going to do? You're going to force them to hand him over. So starts plotting against him and he says, uh, and then David says, bring the ephod here. Then David said, oh Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Kilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Kilah surrender me to his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Oh Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And guess what the Lord says? Yeah, absolutely. What happens is, David leaves. Just like anyone, if somebody's told you that someone's going to come to your house to kill you, what are you going to do? And you know that you can't actually defend yourself against it because there's a massive army coming. You leave. But what? How's this happening? And then Saul, if you look at the end, gives up the expedition when he has David's left. Okay, so let's just, for a moment, let's kind of, God, David is appealing to God's foreknowledge, his omniscience. Okay, God knows all things. So God, is, is Saul going to come down? Is he going to besiege the city? And are the men going to hand me over because they're going to be scared that they're going to take the, the wrath of, of Saul? Yes, that's what's going to happen. Well, then I'm not sticking around. I'm taking my men and I'm sidestepping and I'm going. Oh, but didn't God predestine that? Because he foreknew that. You see, predestination and foreknowledge are two different things. Just because God foresaw it doesn't mean he predestined it. Just because God foresaw that we, as the free will images, would make decisions for ourselves and take the alternative to it instead of loving him. Doesn't mean he predestined us to fall. Doesn't mean he's complicit in the evil. We are the ones who chose that for ourselves. One example can give you multiple in the Bible, but here's a great example. And so the point is that yes, predestination is foreknowledge, clearly, but foreknowledge doesn't need predestination. Does that make sense? Hopefully I explained that well. So that's the point that I was trying to make. Now, there's a softer option that people say. So have you heard this? God's going to make you suffer to bring about his plan in your life. Ach, Sisman. That's not true. Does God use suffering and does God bring about good things from evil because we are called according to his purpose? Absolutely. But does he put those things in our place so we'll go through them to hurt us? How many of you do that to your kids? You know what? Come here, George. I need to give you a, a hiding for the next three years so that at least you'll go through that quicker. You see the, the inconsistency and incongruency of, of how we think. God's not saying that. Oh, oh no, God wants to see a baby get raped just so that his plan would be achieved. Come on. Where do people get this in their heads? God made the Holocaust happen so that, you know, because he had judgment on. When, when I see these prophetic people, and, and please, these prophetic people on the internet, scope them into touch, please. Annalisa sent me one. That's, first of all, can they, can they not give a praise? That's the first thing. Okay? Secondly, why is it always the same things which are obvious? We must obey and we must pray. We know, like on what level, tell us that then. 
Actually, God's calling us to humble ourselves and pray, to heal our land. Okay, cool. That's a prophetic word. Don't give me three pages of telling me all this other stuff, the ins and the outs and the whatever, to show me how great you are, when actually all you're doing is quoting Scripture, which we should know already. Why don't you encourage the church in our obedience to God rather than doing all that junk? So some of those prophetic people, please, stop listening to them. Because everything's going to be okay and everything, actually, it may not. Let's focus on our relationship with God and allow Him to drive us and lead us rather than some prophetic person. And that's part of that problem is, is that some of the churches in our world today, it's all about prophecy. Prophecy is amazing. We've had some here. We had some in our meeting. We want to hear prophetic. Desire the greater gifts. All of those things. But let's not. That cannot be the, the primary thing that you're hearing from God. If you're coming to church to hear a prophetic word for you, we heard some, some last year, some, we had some visitors and whatever, and they said, no, there's not enough prophecy happening in your church. Ach, sis, man. No, man. Why don't you be discipled by Jesus and come and bring your prophetic gift into this thing? Don't come to hear prophetic words for you. Because then you're just jumping in the boat with all these other people doing your selfish things because it's all about you. No, it's about the community. It's about the kingdom of God. Let's get into the boat together so we can get to the other side together. And yes, the prophetic is part of that. But it's not the preeminent thing. It's about relationship with God, loving on Him, hearing from Him for yourself like David. Should I stay or should I go now? Okay, I've got a bit passionate about that. Here's the interesting thing. If you see up here, God can bring about good things, but guess what? Most times he brings about the good through the obedience of his free will images. So you and I, what we do matters. Our choices matter. If you ever want to hear about um, what we think matters, Rich did an amazing preach, and he proves it even through scientific means. Do you know that our thoughts and our choices and who we are actually change things? It changes the matter in front of us. Go read Caroline Leaf. We've got all these funny things going on in our heads through unbelief and fear. You've got things growing in your brain. And it's not from sushi. No, I'm, I'm being silly and whatever, but the point is we do. We have these neural pathways that need to be changed. We can help define how things work out. God may have, God has predestined certain things, but he leaves it up to us on how it's going to work out. So one of the things, and I put this in quickly, I know it's from our previous series, but I sat here and I went, I need the slide up because of what happened in the prayer meeting. And Rich was talking about these choices, this heart, will, and spirit within us. That's our volition. That's our free will. God's given it to us. They're all the same thing. Go read Dallas Willard's. Uh, we call it re Recalibrate. He calls it Renovation of the Heart. His book, a brilliant book about how we are one person. We are soul. We are social. We are body. We are mind. We have thoughts. We have emotions. We have all of these things. And what happens is we're involved in this infinite environment that gets smashed with social media and TV and all kinds of stuff and friends. And we have all these influences. But the point is, is what are our choices? What are our responses? Are our responses because of the world or are our responses because Jesus has come and transform my heart to make the decisions and to actually, from my own volition, choose him and not the world. That's spiritual formation. And that includes your body. What are you doing with your body? Lemon meringue is lovely, but if you're having too much of it, then you will get furniture disease. And for those who don't know what it is, and I know the people who have been here a while, go, oh, Gary, you saying it again? It's when your chest slips into your drawers. It's not a pleasant thing. I'm trying to get mine back up. Anyway. 
The point is, and the most beautiful thing of all, is that God did not have plan B. Plan A has always been in play. He didn't go, oh my gosh, look what JP did. JP's turned 40, and look at the decisions he's making. <laughs> and you know what? God even understands us asking him, God, why is the evil in this world? And he even knows that we have a frustration when we don't get the best answer. Hopefully, I've given you some answer. And that's why we come together as community, because that question mark, maybe this was this big when you arrived. Hopefully, it's like this. And as you study and you see who God is, it's probably this big and it's insignificant. And guess what? One day when we get into eternity, you're going to have that same question in your heart, but it won't matter. God doesn't mind us asking questions. Jesus on the cross, cross said, why, God? We can do the same thing. David does it all the way through Psalms. Why, God? But watch how the Psalms end in worship to him because we realize that when we go to God with our why, we land out meeting the who, and when we meet the who, the why becomes really insignificant. Because Horton's got a who. Yeah. Like we've said, if God wants to eliminate all evil, he has to eliminate you and me. And he's chosen not to do that because he actually loves us too much. So he's sticking to plan A, and he's already made a plan in this whole process. Every single one of us falls short of the glory of God because we have sinned. Every single one of us would be taken out if God took out evil. There was a price that has to be paid because of the evil that has come into this world. And you will see it's not just our fault. We are there. But there are heavenly beings and there are sinister things that we all, we want to see these movies of like, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, exorcists and everything else. And we think of, is there any demon that is exorcised in the Old Testament? Why is it in the New Testament? I'm not going to answer that for you now. Go research it. But we're all worried about somebody being demon-possessed. But what about the spiritual insidious influence that is going towards someone like Putin who influences his decisions as an influential man who draws and herds together a whole bunch of people and then invades another country and kills millions of people? Maybe that's what we should be more concerned about and praying against and praying for God to come and do than the one person, and yes, yes and, but we're so focused on these little things that actually there are bigger things to be concerned about. Louise is going to take us through that, and you'll see. There are geographical influences that we have no clue about. Anyway, the point is, guess who comes on the scene, and why do you think the demons start to jump? Jesus, our Savior. And they realize something's afoot. What's going on? And in all this process, he comes along and he restores our relationship to God. He gives us the right to come back into the presence of God because he pays the price. And Satan is punished to the realm of the dead. God knew what, what was going to happen. He knew that his decision to give us free will would probably land up where we are right now. But it was preferable to have us than not have us. And that's why he doesn't eliminate evil. I know I've said it a few times. And God sees the, what sin and the misery it causes and all of that kind of stuff. And he knows about it, but he's asking us to trust in him. Because he has predestined, he has told us that he's going to... Remember what Revelation says, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more of this junk in the new heaven, the new earth. 
because God's already set a plan in place. But remember, there is a process, and the means to which we get there will depend on the decisions we make and the choices that we make because they matter. He was so consumed and is consumed for his love for us as humanity that he doesn't have a plan B. His plan A is Jesus before the creation of this world. Isn't that true love? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to save us. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment because all of what I've preached on right now, we've seen this verse. We've seen, them on, we've seen this verse on people's shirts at um, um, sporting events. We see people jump up and down with John 3.16, and we know this verse so well. But my, my, my question to you this morning is, does it, does it ring the same after what I've preached? It shouldn't. Because the love of God is so great, and I love the songs that we sang because they all spoke about this. It, it, in some ways, it is reckless. And I know the guy who wrote this has taken a lot of copying from some of the churches. God's love's not reckless, and God's love is perfect. Yes, it is. But it seems reckless to us because why would he allow us to stay on Project Planet Earth when we are such muppets at times? It's because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. And no matter what's going on in your world, it's not because he doesn't love you. And he's not using suffering to teach you a lesson, but he can use that suffering to bring you through the valley of the shadow of death because he's with you into the place of your enemies where he's got a banquet prepared for you. And I'm trusting that this morning what you leave with is that actually God loves me more than I even thought possible, even in your junk, even in your sin. And here's the crazy thing is with all of, of what goes down, with all of this stuff, is that as we go into this, this new kind of space, I want you to hold on to your chairs because I think we've missed a lot of what God has been trying to tell us through his word. And when we start to see it, you see it everywhere in scripture. It's almost been hidden for this time, for such a time as this. But in all of this stuff, what I want to say to you is that instead of God destroying us, he provides a way of salvation for us through his son by sending himself in essence. Because remember, Jesus is also the unique son of God. And no other Elohim is like Jesus because Jesus is like the father. There is only one God. There are other created beings in the heavenly realm. But he pays the price. He puts the plan in place. And you know what all it involves now? Is accepting his plan. Receiving what he has for us and trusting in him that he said, what he said is just true. Do you know that the covenant is between God the Father and God the Son? We cannot mess it up. We simply receive it. Because we trust in who he is and we know the love of the Father. And we put our energy into loving him as he has loved us instead of questioning him about all the stuff that's going on in our world today. Because when we question, guess whose camp we start to put ourselves in? The Hasatan. So hold on to your chairs. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to places that are going to be cool. We're going to look at God's rebellion, all the rebellions that have happened, not just us, but God's heavenly beings. What does that mean? How does that translate into the Tower of Babel, into other stuff? How does that translate when people get baptized? Do you know you're doing spiritual warfare? Do you know when we take communion, yes, we're remembering Christ, but we are doing spiritual warfare? We're not just going with a little nip and sip. No, but we do that, don't we? Oh, it's communion time. Yeah, sure. 
Yeah, that was cool, eh? Well, it was a bit stale, guys. Can you get some new stuff next time? If I had my way, just with all the... I'd have a big goblet that we all toy with. That we have proper kicker bread and we... That's not what... Sometimes we do that. Not these little nip and sip things. We do that from practical reasons. But baptism, it's not just that... Yes, it is associating with God's death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus. But it's more than that. It's actually saying to the spiritual... The powers and principalities, I am God's now. You have no right to me. But we, oh, yeah, you confess Jesus, yes, boom. That's why we take it slow. That's why we have a process. If you want to be baptized, there's a three-day little course. It's a one-pager each day. Go and go online. Do the course and come get baptized. Because actually, if you haven't been baptized, get baptized. And go and read the stuff as to what we've got there, why you should be baptized. It's not going to change your salvation. But oh my goodness, it's going to help you live out the life that God's called you to. Because you were doing spiritual warfare and you were doing what he commanded us to do. Taking communion. I've heard the number of times I've come around and I'm ad-libbing, so apologies. But I, I feel to say this is I've seen people, you bring around the, the uh, emblems. I know we come up and whatever, but we'll see people sit there. You go up to them afterwards, why didn't you take communion? I oh, know, because I had a really bad week and I sinned so badly and I, I don't feel it. So I'm going to do it, you know, and I'm going to... Uh, met, uh, you know, hurt God in this process. No, man, you don't know. Then you don't understand who God is. And I loved, Anita had this thing this morning around the fact that um, Graham Cook was saying that our biggest problem is we actually don't know who we are and whose we are. Our identity is not in the God that has created us, but in ourselves and our own abilities. And so now we go, oh, I can't take communion because I'm so bad. No, man, you've just missed the, you haven't just missed the, the continent, you've missed the planet. Because if, God hasn't taken you out. I've just explained all of that. And yet what we'll do is go, no, I, I, I'm going to take back control and I'm not going to take communion and remember Jesus because I'm so bad. Yeah, you are. Settle that, but know that he's good. He's perfect. I'm imperfect. I'm corruptible, but he's perfect. So let me get into his camp. So let's stop being Muppets and let's move and let's go into what God has for us. Because God has got great things for us because he is a God who loves us with a reckless, undivided unlimited love that I think if we start to grasp that, it changes the way we live out our lives. I'd drop it, but I'd break it. That was my mic drop moment. I'm hoping and I'm trusting that as we go through this process, that you get an insatiable appetite for God's word. We are not doing this to create some kind of controversy. This stuff that we're doing has been peer-reviewed and has gone through multiple things. Does everybody want to agree with some of the, the things that we say no but go and start to research it go and start to read up on it and now it starts to come through everything that we see let's not get confused with the figurehead in job to the mother of all satans the serpent figure in genesis 3 because it does change the dynamic it does change what we see and then when we read that samuel gets conjured up from the dead and we go oh that's just a demon god we can't do that because other scriptures say that no no that's what it is. Let's take the hard text. Let's allow that to drop in. And actually the story becomes bigger and more beautiful. And God becomes more crazily accepting and beautiful and loving than we ever thought or imagined. Come on the journey with us. Ask questions, but don't be questioning. Trust in who God is. And I'm telling you, at the end of the series, I think we as a community 
are going to be positioned for all of what God has for us. Well, let me rephrase that. We'll be better positioned for what God has for us because we know that we know that he loves us. So go, don't, don't take any of the, the plants that Anton planted, but maybe go get a daisy and he loves me, he loves me not. No, no, he loves me, 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 he loves me. He really loves me. 